Welcome to Season 2 of the Coral Project's No Baton Needed podcast. I'm Chris Wilmore, the podcast's executive audio engineer and sometimes host. This season, we will have conversations about minority and diverse representation in the choral world. To kick us off, we're excited to present choral conductor, composer, teacher, and professor emerita at San Jose State University, Dr. Charlene Archibek. We hope you enjoy the first episode of Season 2. Well, welcome, Dr. Charlene Archibek, to our podcast. Uh, it's, a, it's an honor to have you uh, be part of this. We're starting our second season with The Coral Project. And uh, the theme for this season is uh, representation and inclusivity. And when we started talking about who we wanted to include in this, we knew that we wanted you to be a part of it because you were such a trailblazer. Uh, for women conductors. And so, uh, welcome. I'm happy to be asked. As you know, I love your choir. And uh, tell me, who's going to be listening to this podcast? We have uh, followers from all over the country, uh, fans of the Choral Project, friends and family of singers. There are composers uh, that listen as well. The last season, we featured a lot of composers. Joshua Shank, for example, was one of the people we interviewed, and now he is one of our biggest fans of the podcast. He's a huge podcast aficionado, and he loves our podcasts, so that, that was quite exciting. So you'll, there'll be people from all over the country that will be listening to this. Did, did you know that one of the former corollers is now a close friend of Josh, and they have coffee together often? I did not know that. Marge Halloran. She moved there, and of course, she loved his music after singing it with me. Right. And so, so we have another connection there. It's a small musical world, for sure. Yes. All right, well, <clears throat> let's jump in. Um, you are known as Dr. A by many people. So I was curious if you remember who first used that moniker, or if it was, did you create it yourself? That's a very good question. <clears throat> Since I got the doctorate in 69, at the time I was in San Diego, and I have no idea who first used it. I imagine my students there at Mesa College did. Got it. And Mesa College? Mm-hmm. I, that's right. Uh, what, give, give us a little um, sort of timeline of where you taught and where you studied as you moved through and then ultimately settled at San Jose State? Well, I started studying in the second grade, piano, violin in the fourth, cymbals and drums in the sixth, and uh, oh, church organ, of course, and uh, also I picked up the cello as one of the instruments that I loved when I had to study all the instruments at University of Michigan. Um, I was thinking about this today. In, in, in my little town, there wasn't much going on except for music. And then eventually uh, we did get television, of course. We had one of the first TVs in town. I think that was around 1951. Uh, but my friends and I would gather around the piano and play all the latest pop music. I sang in a girl sextet. I arranged music for the marching band and marched in the band played violin and timpani in the orchestra, accompanied all the singers that came through the town on the, you know, they used to have community uh, concerts, and rather famous people would come through town, and I'd have to be the accompanist. So my whole life was just filled with music, and I went to Oberlin Conservatory to major in piano, but did not, we didn't get along. Oberlin was a little too uptight for me. <clears throat> And so I transferred to the University of Michigan, loved the Big Ten, went to every football game, was president of the um, Music Educators National Conference student chapter there, saw my first opera in St. Louis for the National Convention of whatever it was, probably MENC, yeah, then. And uh, that first opera was Wagner's... Um, Parsifal. Parsifal was the first opera that I saw. I had seen several famous pianists. My piano teacher saw to it that when Rubinstein came to Columbus, he got me tickets, and so I went to see him with my mother. And then after I graduated from Michigan, 
I started teaching in San Diego at a junior high school. I was at the junior high level for seven years. I taught almost everything, including uh, the first team teaching of general music classes. I had 90 students, two, two uh, college assistants, and another teacher, and we t- had the first team teaching general music class in America. So we had a lot of visitors traipsing through our room all the time. Uh, I was directing the girl. I had two choirs, 7th and 8th grade, or maybe it was 7th grade beginning and 8th and ninth advanced. I don't remember. But there were a lot of girls singing, and we made some great music. Uh, the first time I got a little nervous, I was in a festival competition, and I had a little talk with myself, and I said, if you're going to get nervous every time you perform, then maybe you should choose another career. <laughs> and, of course, I had a good time at that concert, and uh, I didn't change my career. Then I went to high school, taught uh, at two different high schools in San Diego, first Claremont and then Crawford High School, took my choirs to festivals all over. Uh, One time the principal wouldn't let me go for some reason or other, and so I called them the Charlene Archibald Singers and took them with parents and students driving the car. I I remember we went to Riverside and sang in the Riverside, uh, what is it? It's one of the 22 missions, I think, we sang in then. Anyway, uh, after uh, asking my principal if I could have a telephone in my office, and he said, no, I'd rather give you a martini than a telephone. I said, but I need a telephone to book all the the performances that my singers were asked to, you know, we would sing for the Rotary Club and this and that and the other thing, and I needed a telephone so I could book those appearances. And so when he said that, I thought, I guess I'll have to leave the high school level. So the next year I taught at Mesa College, and then the next year I went to get my doctorate at the University of Colorado. The rest is almost history. I After Colorado, I did go back for a year because I was supposed to pay back the district for letting me be gone. And uh, I was offered the job at San Jose State, so I paid off the rest of my sabbatical and moved to San Diego with my daughter, Melissa, and my then-husband, Joe Archibald. So you moved to San Diego or moved to San Jose, you mean? Did I? I, I often do that. San Diego and San Jose. Yeah, I moved from San Diego to San Jose. Got it. And you, in, in 1969, you were the first woman to receive a doctorate of musical arts and choral conducting from the university. And So what was that like? Well, I didn't know I was the first. I didn't even think about it. Uh, I wasn't just the first at Colorado. I was the first anywhere in the world. Oh. Uh, Colorado had only given two doctorates before mine. One was Eve Ely my good friend, Eve, and the other was Hugh Sanders, who was a president, national president of ACDA. Wow. So uh, it wasn't until Trent Patterson wrote his doctoral dissertation on my career, and he asked me, he said, uh, what other women got their DMAs in choral conducting about the same time you did? And I, I said, well, let me think. I couldn't think of any. The only women I knew who had doctorates, they were in uh, music education, or I think maybe one or two had one from Indiana in orchestral conducting, but none in choral. So as far as I know, unless somebody can prove me wrong, I'm the first. Wow. Did you know that when you got that, you were going down a path as a trailblazer? No, I did not, and I didn't even think about it. So what what was it like to be a female conductor when you first started your career in a field that was predominantly male? Well, the interesting thing is that I probably wouldn't have been a choral director except that San Diego put all of the men hirees in charge of the orchestras and bands, high school and junior high, and the women were automatically given the choir position because they didn't ever assign a woman to an instrumental position. So that kind of decided my fate. 
You know, that would not be allowed now, of course. But at that time, I didn't fight it. I was happy to have two choirs. And um, there were other women choral directors at the high schools in San Diego, several very well-known and respected women. So I didn't think I was unusual. Um, I, I did get a few comments uh, as I gained some stature. I remember Bill Hall saying, Charlene is the best woman choral conductor I know. There was always that. <laughs> right. I remember you telling me that and saying, I don't want to be the best woman conductor. I just want to be the best conductor. For those who don't know, who is Bill Hall? Who's William Hall? He was the director for 50 years of the Chapman University Choir and Chamber Singers, a real leader in choral music, uh, both in California and throughout. He, he started his own small touring choir that was something like Norman Luboff's member at the time. Norman Luboff had uh, the Luboff Singers, and there was the Fred Waring Singers, then there was the Bill Hall Singers. Right. Yeah, he was a, a real champion, and, and the Chapman is known for producing really fantastic voices. They had a fine vocal department. Uh, Bill chose most of the teachers himself, so he was sure they all got along together. Right, and they all follow the same philosophy. Do you remember the first piece you conducted professionally as a paying gig and where you performed it? Wow. <laughs> uh, I, I had not even thought about that. Or even just the first piece you, you conducted at all. I, as, a, like a, as a student, I remember the first piece that I led, uh, but it was a, as a student, it wasn't as a professional. Well, I suppose I, I did my student teaching at, uh, at uh, Anna, no. I was in yeah Ann Arbor High School. I was I was student teaching the high school choir. I also got to uh, student teach at the orchestra, the high school orchestra. So I did student teach at both, but I have no idea what the first pieces were. Is are there memorable pieces from um, early on in your career that you sort of feel like were? Um milestones early on like yes i'm going in the right direction yes this is exciting are there specific pieces that you can recall well some of the pieces that i remember that i, I liked a lot of course were the um mozart regina chaley with orchestra i co i conducted that and uh the jubilant song of norman de la joyo with you know the great piano part those were two highlights of my early conducting. Norman De La Joya is wonderful. You've done quite a few of his pieces. I did several of them with you at San Jose State. Um, and, and I met I met him. That's right. Well, um, he's uh, his ex-wife is connected to the old First Church concert series in San Francisco, I believe. Uh, That's right. Which is a wonderful concert series. And, but uh, Della Joya, just a, a terrific composer, a lot of interesting influence from jazz in his music, but it doesn't feel like jazz when you're hearing it. He, he also wrote great piano accompaniments. I'm thinking of the uh, Bluebird of his. And also, she uh, lived in Berkeley. I remember that. The, the ex-wife? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, you've... <laughs> had about 80 conductors complete their master's degree in choral conducting when you were uh, the director of choral activities for 35 years at San Jose State University. And, and they've gone on to positions of choral leadership around the world. How does it feel to know that you've been instrumental in shaping the choral landscape um, and influencing and guiding so many people in prominent roles in, in the choral world? It's very gratifying, needless to say. The scary part is that some of those same students have already retired from full careers. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, and I try to keep in touch with a lot of them. Um, and then uh, not only the students who got their master's with me, but many 
who went on and got doctorates at other schools, uh, whether they got their masters or not, because they would go, you know, other places from the uh, choral program, both from my high school and from the San Jose State University. And so that made me very proud. And what I think made me just as proud was the fact that I would get letters from young people saying that they didn't know that a woman could be a choral director and that because of my conducting them at honor choirs or other festival choirs that they decided to major in music and become conductors themselves. And there are many students that you've affected just from honor choirs. I I know that somebody who isn't sure what they wanted to do, they sing in an honor choir with you and suddenly it's like, I want to do it. I want to do that. And then they go to study. I, um, for, for me, I remember when I first met you, I, um, I was going to transfer to San Jose State and I had, my voice was just so screwed up when I was, um, a young student and I had been studying with a woman named Gail, Gail Birdsong, Gail Golden Birdsong at the time, who was a graduate, one of your students. And she said, oh, go and audition for the voice uh, scholarship to get into the voice program. And I auditioned against uh, Denise Owen, who actually is now a singer in my choir. But this, she has this beautiful spinto voice and really knew what the heck she was doing. And I was just a disaster. And I was, uh, I didn't do well. And, and Jean, the late, great Jean Garson, who I ended up ultimately working with at San Jose State as a, 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 in her voice studio. But she talked to me afterwards in, in your office, in the choral office, and she, you know, she could be brusque. <laughs> and she, your voice is just sort of a mess in the mid-range, and you really beat it up, and I don't know why you're so rough with it. And I just was crestfallen, because I really didn't know what I was doing. And you were, you spotted it, and you looked at me and said, let's talk. And, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And then I said, well, I'm a pianist. And you went, oh, you're a pianist. And you put me through my paces and you said, all right, here, sight read this. So I sight read some accompaniment. All right, let's do this four hands. We did some Liebesleder waltzes by Brahms. You threw that in front of me and all right, here, do this open score, sight read this. So I sight read open score. And then you said, well, I need a pianist for both choirs. So I'll give you a scholarship to be my pianist. So you can come into the program. And I thought about that um i think about that a lot because you were so insightful you could you could see that well i think there's more to you know what's going on here and i need to get into it and had you not given me that opportunity i i'm not sure that i would actually be choral directing today because that opened a door to this amazing world i mean i had really no idea what choral music could be until i sat in a class and then heard all these voices and went oh my gosh this is extraordinary so uh, i'm eternally grateful for that it um it yeah so i I thank you for that my good thank you uh that, that was very very smart of me at the time i i always did try to analyze what students needed and where they might be going as they interviewed for me and auditioned for me. Uh, although the in- auditions were t- really too short, you know, when you had to go through. I would sometimes, in the early days at San Jose State, I would audition 150 or 160 different singers, and I had to choose the 70 best at that time. Eventually, uh, the number of people who decided to major in music the, dropped. You know, it wasn't always that huge field to choose from. I had lean years and and good years, you know. Well, and as the state reeled with the aftershock of Proposition 13 in the 70s, as the feeder programs, first elementary and then middle school, all those programs started to get cut, then for many students, the high school ended up being their introduction to music at all. So when they would go on to the college level, it just, it did really affect the way the college programs were in terms of the quality student. That's very smart of you to remember that. Yes. Uh, all of a sudden, high schools all didn't have choral music programs anymore. And the ones that were around weren't all that great. And instrumental programs just collapsed in. And so there was it's a kind of a tragedy. It's, it's been interesting to see since then, because I, I, as a, 
child, you know, I, I was in elementary school during the 70s, growing up during that and seeing the effect that it created. Uh, and then after that, 20 years after that, seeing how resourceful people were being to try to give students opportunities that districts couldn't afford because they didn't have the funding to do so. And so, and I think that we're now in the upswing of that where the programs are starting to get larger again, which is really wonderful. How many, uh, how many students who have completed their uh, master's degree keep, um, under your direction, your tutelage, keep in touch with you today about, about how many would you say? You know, I've never counted. And uh, when I get letters or hear uh, from students, I have a little alumni file and I put their letter in it or make a note that so-and-so is still alive <laughs> because... Uh, I did lose uh, several students, of course, through the years. And um, I would guess, uh, rough guess, at least a third, uh, stay in pretty close touch with me. That's wonderful. Well, you, you, you have a tremendous effect on people, so that's not a surprise. I wish they all did. I, I think of them all at different times as I look at photos and... People don't realize how these are not just my students, they're my friends, and I, I wish they would all keep in touch with me. I like to hear about their families, their children, their careers. So you keep a file on your students. What's in my file? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I don't let you alone with my computer. <laughs> you keep that locked up. <laughs> uh, you've conducted, um, in addition to, you know, all the wonderful work you've done as an educator, you've also conducted at some of the world's premier concert venues like Carnegie Hall and Kennedy Center, um, Royal Albert Hall in London. Is there one landmark recital hall that slipped through your fingers or that you'd wished you'd performed in before you retired? Actually, um... That's, that's a question that I hadn't considered because I was in so many different concert halls. In one that I had not and was recently able to was the Boston Symphony Hall. I did the Massachusetts Allstate Choir, I think it was four years ago, and that was my first time. Everybody, of course, raves about Boston Symphony Hall. The acoustics there are really unbelievable, marvelous, yeah. I remember also the great acoustics in uh, Zurich. It was just a oblong box, you know, all wood, and the acoustics again were just, you, you literally could hear a pin drop. Cleveland Hall, I loved. Do, of any of those, do you have a particular favorite of any of the venues in which you've been in? Uh, I'm just happy to get to conduct anybody, anytime. Anywhere. I know for me, it, when I toured with the Corylears under your baton in uh, 1994, when we went to the Tallinn Festival, uh, the Glinka Capella in St. Petersburg was a spectacular concert venue. And even today, as all the venues I've conducted in, in my memory, that's still one of the nicest acoustics I've ever been in. It had enough ring to, to round everything out, but you could do concert works, not sacred works. You could do things with instruments, and then nothing was muddled. It was really extraordinary. And, of course, it was a space that was designed for choirs, so the stage has these four terraces built in that the singers can stand on. You're right. That was very special, and I especially remember the the three members of the uh, the conservatory there and how they raved about our choir. They said they thought it was one of the best choirs that it had ever sung in the Glinkin Chapel, Glinka Chapel. And they particularly were um, amazed at the fact that we sang our whole concert from memory. You remember that? Remember their comments? And uh, uh, a couple of them actually, I tried to remember some of the things that they had said because they were speaking in English or there must have been a translator, I don't remember. And it was hard for me to catch everything they said and to remember, but they were very complimentary, and they loved our programming. At, we did the Bluebird of Della Joya at that concert, as I recall. We did that and uh, Come to Me, My Love by Della Joya. That's right. Beautiful piece. I'm going to shift now. Um, 
You have an IMDb music credit for a 2013 movie short called Nedelai. And for the listeners who don't know what IMDb is, it stands for Internet Movie Database. It's an um, online database that catalogs movies and television shows and things like that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that film credit? I didn't even know I had it. Really? <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> so apparently, yeah, if you look on that website, there's a, a movie called Nedelai, and it lists you as choral director. So there's music. Oh, that, that movie, yes. Yes, okay. Um, the director came to San Jose State, and uh, he did hire us. That's right. I, I never saw it afterwards. I forgot about it. Uh, we rehearsed the music, and we learned it, and then he came and actually recorded it right in room 150. Wow. Do, do you remember what the material was? Was it original material? Yes, it was. What was the composer's connection to San Jose State or you? That's a very good question. Somebody recommended us. It was the Coraliers. It wasn't the whole choir. And um, I had never met him before. I really don't remember how he found me and the Coraliers, but... Uh, uh, have you ever looked up to see if you could see that movie? I well, I'm going to now. Um, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> we well, it's you had mentioned it to me when it first happened. I was no longer in the Quirl program; that it was long after that. Uh, but <clears throat> the uh, you had mentioned it uh, to me, and I had just forgotten about it until it came up and the questions we're putting together. And for people who aren't. Um, San Jose State students who don't know, room 150 is the large rehearsal room that the choirs rehearse in. It, it also has tiered levels in which to sit. It's at San Jose State University. So it's a, anyone who's been at San Jose State knows the term room 150 because it's one of the big rehearsal rooms. <clears throat> well, it's for a, it'll be a little project for me to go and see if I can find that film and, and look it up. And I, I'm curious to know what the music was and, and hear the Coralier singing in the background now. Um, that's actually a really great segue because in addition to conducting, you've also done some composing and arranging. And I would, would love our listeners to learn a little bit more about that. Well, I always thought there might be some music in me and, uh, I sat down at the piano one day because I had this text uh, that was by a, the first female poet in America, and it was right when people were more interested in female poets, composers, uh, conductors, you know. And I would be on panels at various conferences for women. And uh, I didn't like the setting of that poem that somebody else had made and I thought I wonder if I could do a better job so I thought that sat down at the piano and it just came out and since then I haven't had any original ideas so that's the only piece I've really written from scratch and that that piece in poet what's the name of the piece in the poet it's called the cooling shadow right and you have a better memory than I do. The Cooley Shadow and the poetess was Anne Bradstreet. Bradstreet. I, I I remember that piece distinctly because I was in the choir that premiered the piece. We workshopped it from the manuscript, and it helped you edit. You know, if we caught things that were wrong before it went to the publisher, it's a it's a it's a lovely composition. Thank you. I I wish it were longer. Uh, it, I like it myself. As far as arranging, we had to arrange music uh, as a choral major at the University of Colorado. And I had to do a whole recital of music that I had arranged or transcribed or set for uh, Baroque instruments. And um, that was a 45-minute concert. So for that concert, I arranged several spirituals. I arranged... Um, Various pieces as I needed them. You know, as I said, I had a, a girl's sextet. So I would fiddle around with arranging. And of course, um, when I was uh, in high school and had to write out the parts for the concert band, I learned to hear the parts in my head. And I would arrange the parts for the whole concert band. 
Well, and and one of those pieces that you wrote, you arranged for your women's group was Scarborough Fair. And I only bring that up because the Coral Project has sung that arrangement. It's an absolutely breathtaking setting of that. Very haunting and very sweet. Thank you. Yes, and, and it can be done with various instruments, including guitar, harp, harpsichord. I added uh, bells to it. You could use handbells or... A glockenspiel, yeah. Right. It's a, it's a versatile piece, and it works for uh, any, any age group. It's, it's nice to, when you find a composition that's sort of universally age-appropriate for the most part. Uh, it's, it's really lovely. Thank you. There's another project that I'm excited to talk to you about that you're involved in right now that's called Divas at the Mansion, and a film that's attached to it called Ladies in Their 80s. So I'm wondering if you can tell us how this came about, what prompted the endeavor, etc. Well, I'm very lucky to have a good friend who is a beautiful soprano, and I had heard her sing casually once at one of our symphony uh, league meetings. And several times I had encouraged her. I said, why don't you give me some of the music that you like to sing and I'll practice it and we could have fun singing together. Because many people had asked her, would she sing? And she says, no, I don't have anything ready, you know. And uh, maybe once or twice a year I'd say, Eileen, when are you going to give me some music so that we can work together on uh, some of the repertoire that you know and love? So if it weren't for Nitu Bhatia, who happens to also live here in the same condo complex, uh, she also became a friend of both Eileen and mine, and she said it would be so great if you guys would do a recital for the people who live here at the condo. And we thought about it, and Eileen kind of laughed it off, and finally I just said, Eileen, stop messing around, give me some music because I don't know what music you want to sing. It has to come from you. So she finally broke down and brought me stacks of songs. And I wish that we weren't in COVID and you were here to play for her because most of the songs that she picked, I had not sung or played before. So we tried a few out and I said, yeah, I think I can play these and I think I can play this, but forget that one, you know. One she really wanted to do, but it was really difficult accompaniment. And I knew we didn't have a whole lot of time if we were going to get this out by Christmas. So we uh, started rehearsing. She started learning in, uh, the words to some of the songs that she had not memorized. Uh, she got her voice back in shape. She started exercising and vocalizing. And I sat at the piano and practiced like heck. I mean, really hard. And then we'd get together and she would tell me where she wanted to slow down, where she wanted to speed up if I wasn't alert to it, you know, how long she was going to hold a fermata. But as you know, singers never sing anything exactly the same every time. So you always have to be listening as you accompany. And uh, it was a stretch for both of us, but we were happy at our age that she sang eight songs and I uh, played the harp etude of Chopin by myself. So we feel very proud of ourselves, and we had a great time doing it and became even better friends. So there's a movie that's made based on the entire project, the, the rehearsal process and the performance? And it's still available on demand through Nitu's platform called Feel It Live. Oh, wonderful. That's the platform that... The Choral Project and the San Jose Chamber Orchestra used for our Winter's Gifts concert. Yes, and that was a lovely concert. Again, thank you. Thank you. Is, um, is there a piece you would label as your favorite to conduct? One that you never get tired of or, or, 
or one that you've performed the most as a conductor? That's a great question. I love the Gloria of Hulaik. I adore conducting that with orchestra. It's so rhythmic, and I love the timbres of it. Um, I also love conducting Vaughn Williams' music, a number of his pieces. Uh, of course, I did uh, Dona Nobis Hachem three or four times, at least, uh, and other pieces of Vaughn Williams. Um, something else came to mind when you said that. Uh, without orchestra, I, I particularly love the Brahms Opus 104. The uh, Opus 104, for listeners who don't know, it's actually it's a five songs in one opus number. So you could think of it as a five movement piece, as it were. But there, it's five different poems, and it's a late work for Brahms, but just beautiful. Not easy, but so rewarding when you get it together. Wonderful repertoire. Well, we can't ignore the topic of COVID nineteen. We're now in nine months into the pandemic, and it's unclear as to how or when singers can gather together. But it is fascinating how virtual choir performances have advanced um, in the time since people around the world have been forced to isolate. What is your um, opinion? What are your thoughts around the virtual choir? I, I think it's an interesting aspect of what singers can do. And believe it or not, there's still a lot of people who have not heard of virtual choirs. And so I just explained it to my husband, Bob's daughter, Polly, and I sent her examples of several virtual choirs because those of us who don't love choirs who aren't in the choral movement still don't know what a virtual choir is. And when I explained how it's done with each singer alone in his or her own room with a microphone and two different speakers in their ears and what it takes to put together a virtual choir. I mean, they're amazed. The time and talent that it takes. And I think a lot of uh, directors realize how important it is now that each of their singers can sing independently, that they can learn their music by themselves, that they don't have to have it taught by rote, that they can take the music home, learn it, sing it, record it, and then have it combined with all the other singers in that particular choir. I think it has showed directors some, how some of their singers are not independent musicians enough and that they need to spend more time working on their music skills, their hearing, their time, their sense of time and the consistency of the, the tempo. And the certain click tracks have done a lot you know, to help that. I must say that um, I love watching the singers' faces, and so those who don't record their singers' faces, I think, are really missing a bet. It's so important, and I think, uh, well, for example, your own recording. When we listened to the music, it was beautiful, but when we saw their faces, I started crying. Immediately, there was this emotional connection with the music and the singers that you don't get any other way. So virtual choirs will never take the place of a live choir. We know that. And I think also with vaccine now coming and uh, our understanding of what we need to do to get choirs back together, uh, every choir director in the world is just waiting for that first live downbeat. Ain't that the truth? Oh. There's nothing like it. In fact, uh, if anybody asked me what would I rather do right now than anything else, it would be to stand in front of a choir and wave my hand and make music with real live singers. The second thing that I would like to do, of course, is continue teaching. I love teaching grad students, and I have done a lot of that with Zoom, and I've been thankful for those who have asked me to come and do seminars with their grad students. But I'm dying for somebody to have a real choir and say, would you come and conduct it? I know everybody else is going to be so happy that they won't want to turn their choirs over to anyone else. But I'm hoping someone will let me come and do that. Well, we'll see what we can work out. <laughs> that, is that a promise? Yeah, that's a promise. It's officially on the air. <laughs> 
if what would you be doing now if you had not gone down the path of music? What do you think you'd be doing? Wow. <laughs> uh, I've been so happy doing what I'm doing. Uh, the only other career that I really considered was uh, maybe becoming a doctor because there was a period in my life where I felt maybe I was wasting my time and life on earth making music instead of healing people. And then little by little, I realized that I was healing people through my music and that I was probably better suited to being a musician than a medical doctor. And um, I never considered any other career, frankly, unless it would be uh, to start up a business. And I have no idea what that business would be. I did consider with Bob marketing a a salve that he had invented and used on his patients, which was so effective. I was going to call it Melnique. For those of our listeners who don't know, Bob is Charlene's wonderful late husband, who is a, a very respected dermatologist in the Bay Area. Well, it, I know you well enough to know that you have lots of skills. I actually think you could have had a career as being a professional um, uh, entertainer like Martha Stewart. Um, you, Charlene used to have these amazing New Year's Eve parties, and she would prepare incredible food, and it, it really did feel extremely elevated and elegant, and uh, I, you could have easily done that if you had wanted to do that. Now that you mention it, at one time I did consider buying an estate that was near here. It had uh, uh, several large buildings, and I thought, if I bought that, I could be a wedding planner, because I know the musicians. I know the people who could conduct the ceremonies. I could do the food and oversee the catering. So it didn't last long, but that particular state seemed to lend itself really well to being a wedding venue. And I know how hard people search for the right place to get married and to have everything right, you know. So I, that that's interesting you said that. All in one kind of a, you come here, we'll take care of it all. Right. Well, this podcast is um, affectionately called No Baton Needed. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek there. But we ask everybody who we interview what their stance is on conducting uh, with the baton. And, of course, I'm pretty sure I know what your stance is because of I studied with you. But I think our listeners would be interested to hear what you say. That's so funny because as I read No Baton Needed in front of me uh, while we're talking, I thought, I wonder if he's going to ask me anything about the baton. You and I are too much on the same wavelength. I use a baton in rehearsals for several reasons. One, I found that when I use a baton, the singers stay together and the rhythm is more precise. Uh, there's just something about it. Rather than seeing your hand flop around, and they watch the tip of the baton, the beat, the ictus is clearer, I think. Also, for me, it forces me to keep my beat inside the magical conducting window, we call it. Otherwise, I'm all over dancing, you know, doing a ballet in front of my choir, instead of making the beats clear and readable and much more refined. So it keeps me on my mark. It helps the singers. And it also saves my arm and my shoulder and my back. Uh, I know that when I use a baton, because it's a wrist instrument, I don't get anything else tired. And if I were really tired, I could always park my elbow against my body and just conduct with my wrist. Although usually it's up. Higher than that, uh, that's a good place, you know, waist level for the bottom of the conducting field. So um, when I conduct in concert, I tend to only use a baton if it's a very rhythmic piece, something very contemporary with changing meters, perhaps Stravinsky, or if I'm conducting instruments, because I find that it gives a little bit added uh, um, respect to the conductor for instrumentalists who see a choral conductor who knows how to use a baton and that they're more used to using a baton generally although there are some great choral, uh, orchestral directors who now use their hands instead 
or use both like I do. If I'm doing early music, like Renaissance, I certainly would not use a baton. But if I'm doing classical or Baroque, I certainly would use a baton. So there's no hard and fast rule. Like It's not all one or the other. It really depends on the needs of the music and, and uh, your needs in rehearsal, just trying to get the most out of the singers. Right. What would be your top advice for young musicians toying with the idea of becoming a choral conductor? Toying? <laughs> I hope it's more serious than just toying. Well, if they're, if they're kicking around, oh. they're thinking, maybe I want to do this, and they're, but they're not sure. If you had advice for them, what would you say? I know what you meant. I just, teasing you. Anyway, um, I think if somebody is seriously considering going into the conducting field, then they need to be sure that their musical skills are at a very high level. And that means having proficiency on an instrument, preferably one other than the voice. Uh, certainly, keyboard skills are awfully important for a conductor. You don't always have a pianist around. And um, I think the ability to hear has to be developed, and uh, certainly my childhood experiences in orchestra, band, and choir, and accompanying choirs and solo singers helped develop my ear and my training in pop music, which I know you wouldn't believe, but my piano teacher did teach me chording. So when I went to major in music, you know, I already understood chords and inversions and how to build them. and. Um, and so I think the ability to hear everything at once, all the instruments and the singers and all the parts, uh, if not something that is, is easy to attain. And so it means spending certainly um, the greater part of your life listening and developing those skills. And it's not something that can just happen being a music major for four years in college, I don't think. So I would say uh, be sure that you have an adequate background and that you already have the talent. There is a talent there, and it has to be developed. And for me, I, when I'm asked, uh, should I do this? Should I go into music as a career? I, the one thing I tell them is you, you have to be okay with failing miserably a lot it it's there the fire inside has to be strong enough to just keep propelling you forward because uh it it is very easy to be to be devastated i mean there nobody is a perfect artist they they go up and down that not only that you also have to love people if you're going to work with people then you have to love people uh it's not just loving the music it's loving to work with people unless you want to be a solo pianist and, and spend, you know, lots of hours alone in a practice room. Right, for sure. And there are pianists that I know that don't have good people skills at all, and, and that's part of the reason why they, are, they love the instrument the way they do is because that's the way they interface with the world is just purely through the keyboard. What is the best music-related advice that you have ever received? One, I remember of Fiora Contino, who was in charge of the choral conducting program at Aspen Summer Music Festival. After I had conducted a mass of Schubert with the choir and the orchestra, she asked me to have breakfast with her, and we talked a lot, and she said, my advice to you is that you begin with the ending in mind. And that was something nobody had ever said to me. Um, and I think of it often as I uh, work with young musicians, even the beginning of a three-minute piece and what is going to happen inside that three-minute. Are there different sections? Is there a middle section that is different? How is it going to end? And so. It gives you a whole different perspective when you begin a piece with the end in mind. 
you have to see the big picture, in other words, not just page one, page two, this chord, that chord, this verse, that verse. How, how does the whole piece progress? And what can you do to make it have that feeling of progression so that one chord leads to another, that one idea leads to the next? And I think that that's advice that can be taken into many, many aspects of living. Just if you're starting a project, having the end in mind is key. Right. See the big picture. Planning a program like you do, you know. Are you just going to do a series of encores, one after the other, or a series of soft, quiet pieces? Or is there a, a mood or an idea that makes the audience follow your idea of the beginning from the first piece, the first sound, to that final ringing chord? Well, I'll, I'll challenge you. If, if you write another piece of music in 2021, the Choral Project will sing it when we start singing again. Uh-oh. I have, to, I have to live up to that challenge, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you have to give me a poem that you love. I'll find several poems and send them your way and see what you think. That so would you, be great. You can scratch that itch again. <laughs> so in season one, uh, we would often play a flash round of this or that at the end of our interviews where we would ask them, do you prefer this or that? Do you? Um, but for season two, we thought it would be fun to change it up and instead play a round of uh, would you rather? And we were inspired by Classical FM, um, the website Classical FM, for some of these questions. So... Would you rather hear your favorite artist perform your least favorite song or your least favorite artist perform your favorite song? That's pretty obvious. I would rather rather hear the wonderful artist performing any song he wants to sing than vice versa. And who, who would be your favorite artist in that context? Uh, I love Bryn Terfel. I even listened to his Christmas music this Christmas. And then, as tired as I am of Christmas music after how many years? 83. My first, first recording was Up on the housetop, reindeer paws, out chops good old Santa Claus. And I recorded that state fair. So, um, I'm, you know, so much for Christmas music. What's your next question? Well, I have to intercede really quick about that Christmas carol, because as a child, I always got the lyrics up up on the housetop. I thought when it says the reindeer paws, I thought it was their paws, like their feet. I didn't know that I didn't get that, oh, their hooves, not paws. <laughs> it wasn't until years later that I, I saw the score and I went, oh, it's like they stop. Oh, of course, that makes much more sense. All right, would you rather listen to music without singers for a year or listen to a cappella music for a year? So I guess it's would you rather listen to instrumental music for a year or listen to music that's unaccompanied for a year? Well, for actual listening, I prefer orchestral music, and that's why I go... Every chance I get to hear the San Francisco Symphony, and of course, in its heyday, the San Jose Symphony with George Cleave, I adore orchestral music, and um, the only choirs that I go to are those of my friends that I think are worth uh, sitting through a whole concert. Uh, I don't want to hear mediocre choirs unless I get to work with them. <laughs> uh, uh, and help them be better. Uh, I'm very particular about the choirs that I go to hear, so the Choral Project can be assured that I love going to all of their concerts. We love it when, you sh when you're able to come, for sure. I like to hear uh, some new music, but I, what I really want to hear when I go to a choir is great music sung by great singers. And um, that will always be what will determine is the programming and the quality of the singing. So um, I adore symphonic music. 
and I have season tickets and have had ever since I came here. Would you rather your accompanist falls asleep or your audience falls asleep? I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> How could the accompanist fall asleep? <laughs> if I have a good accompanist, he's not going to fall asleep. And I certainly don't want anybody in my audience falling asleep. I agree. Would you rather watch the complete ring cycle in one sitting or listen to Pachel Bell's canon in D for eight consecutive hours? Obviously the ring. Okay. And finally, would you rather go to a randomly selected musical performance every month for a year or go to only one performance in a year of your choosing? Woo. Who thought that one up? <laughs> uh, I guess randomly, because at least it would be more music and live and uh, give me more to think about. I mean, they're sort of impossible questions, you know, but it's, <laughs> it's interesting to learn, you know, you pick away and, and see if we can learn a little bit more. Well, that brings us to the end of our interview. It's been a joy. It's always a joy when I have a chance to visit with you and talk with you and exchange ideas. And we're very honored that you were able to spend this time with us so that we can learn a little bit more about you and the uh, amazing influence that you've had on the musical world. Well, thank you, Daniel. And I love your questions. I, I didn't think about the, how you would direct me. I must confess, I hadn't even thought, tried to second guess you about your question. So uh, I, I came into it cold. Well, and I'm really lucky because the other, the other teammates in this really do such wonderful planning that I don't have very much to do. So it's, yeah. It's been real fun. Well, thank you so much. I wish you a wonderful new year, and I look forward to touching base in 2021. Thank you, and good luck to you and all of our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and follow The Coral Project on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. And to learn more about sponsorship opportunities for the podcast, please email podcast at coralproject.org.